Cinema Show, where we bring you movie news, reviews, and insights right here on our podcast. I'm Dylan Martin. Here with me is the lovely Lori. Hello, Dylan. Yes, lovely Lori here. Lovely day. Lovely topic that we're on today. Yes, and Jackson is not here with us. He said something about going on a week-long drinking binge and starting a newspaper company. Um, mm. Good luck to his future endeavors. If he ever does come back, we will welcome him. Except sober. That's the only condition. But speaking of which, <laughs> you know, Lori, when you get us together, me and you, mm -hmm. either two things happen. Mm. Thunderous applause or the cops get called. Or both. <laughs> or both. So Either <laughs> way, the lights are all on me. Wouldn't have it any other way because... Mm. Us two together, it's it's sangria and popcorn. That's what it's it is. It's sangria and popcorn. Speaking of <laughs> alcohol, oh my goodness, what a saturation we have of it in today's sangria and popcorn episode. Today we will be talking about Citizen Kane. Now, some say it's the best movie of all time. I say, well, before we get into Citizen Kane, I think it's mm. very appropriate to talk about the man himself. Orson Welles. I know you have a lot of thoughts about this man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say he was most famous for his War of the Worlds broadcast. Yes. And, you know, everything he did with that, that's something that could never be duplicated. Talk about doing something for the first time. Mm -hmm. But talk about peaking very early in his career with that. Yes. And also, he was a son of an inventor who Orson Welles himself has gone on record saying he was a terrible inventor. <laughs> so there's not too much to talk about with his upbringing. But yes, early on in his career, he was a huge, huge theater person in his in his vicinity, in his local area. But something changed in his life. And I would say that was with FDR, the president then, the New Deal he had created called the Federal Theater Project. And it was a stimulus for performing arts, which helped Orson Welles fund his career. And I believe one of those projects was a touring show of Macbeth, but a very different Macbeth. It was an all-black cast, and it was called Voodoo Macbeth. And context for myself, all I knew about Orson Welles was that he did everything, supposedly. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, for Citizen Kane, and of course the War of the Worlds broadcast that he did with his theater company called Mercury Theater. So you know how you talk about people saying, oh, me and my boys are going to eat? Uh, this was one of those guys. He hired a bunch of his local friends and colleagues to work at his theater, and he brought them on to do those radio shows, which one of them was War of the Worlds. And then eventually you'll see most of that those cast members in Citizen Kane. I thought that was pretty cool. Orson Welles, and such an outside man from Hollywood, which why a lot of people wanted to work with him, which we'll talk about. Before Citizen Kane or the world, I think that was genius. You go back and you listen to that recording and it's 
and, and talk about a voice. And I think that was something that followed him not only through his career, but beyond that. I think now you hear something like, oh, wow, it's a very I, the sound I'm looking for is very Orson Welles. To this day, you know, you hear narrations when it comes to stories, anything on the radio, anything on audiobooks, and you just respond to that Orson Welles-esque voice. You know, it's predominant. There's just something about it that gives it credibility, authenticity, and that people know. Talk about that. As far as before that, I knew he was into theater. I did not know. You tell me his dad was an inventor and I immediately, I just imagine like Belle from the Beauty and the Beast, you know, her, her dad. But it makes sense that he was. It makes sense that he kind of had that lineage of coming from somebody who, because to be an inventor, you know, and especially a bad inventor, talk about delusional self-confidence that you yeah. have to have to keep at it. To be a bad inventor, it's one thing to be a good, great inventor, but to be a bad inventor, like mm-hmm. you stuck with that. That's what it says at the end of your life. He was a, you know, he was an inventor, not a very good one. Like, wow, he just like really had that self-confidence and self-belief to almost a delusional place. But you have to. That's why it's so hard in the business. That's why it's so hard in movies and in Hollywood because you really do. You have these people who come on the scene and good, bad, or ugly, you have to have such a belief in yourself almost to this delusional point and you go one way you know it's Icarus you're right just kind of like when you said how me and you get together we're either gonna touch the sun or we're gonna burn up but either way it's gonna be glorious <laughs> it's gonna be one hell of a ride and Orson it's gonna be Wells, one hell of a ride Orson Welles had one hell of a ride so yeah War of the Worlds he became an instant sensation nationwide and that's when RKO approached him to make a movie with no oversight at all a complete creative freedom which even back in the days of in the 30s that is a huge that's a blessing especially during the great depression you have these competing studios and it's a lot different than it is now you have warner brothers and mgm rko all in the running all in competition and the game was dirtier back then so for orson wells this complete outsider coming in you could say it was a huge gamble i mean back then Mm -hmm. the type of movies they were dishing out what orson wells wanted to make it was (laughs) well especially given the context within the movie itself and what he portrayed certain people in that movie and how it rubbed people the wrong way which we'll talk about later Mm-hmm. But yeah, Orson Welles, and I guess we'll talk about Mankiewicz later on when we talk about Mank, but just Orson Welles himself is a man, given the research I have done already, I watched like a two-hour documentary on him uh, when he was like late in his years, uh, still a character in his later years, but mm-hmm. I found him fascinating as a person, his drive, and keep in mind, Citizen Kane, regarded as one of the best movies of all time, he was only 24 when that movie was made and came out. 24. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. that in itself is just remarkable. Something to praise. But let's talk about the movie. Let's take away the man himself and what's going to transpire afterwards. Before we go away from the man, can I just say, though, my biggest thing, poor Rita Hayworth, his first wife i believe was it his first or his second i'm not sure but it was a early marriage he was 28 when they got married i know i know that it was her first i remember okay. it was her first marriage and of course a lot of it you know you don't know what to believe but they said she was at the height of her career whenever mm-hmm. they got married so he 
was at the height of his career in his mid-20s. He starts getting to his late later 20s. He's still a very respected man in Hollywood, but let's be very honest about Orson Welles. He, he burned bright and he burned fast. When he peaked, he had what a glorious burn he had. Brightest we'd ever seen. But then he started crashing. And we see that in his later years. And he kind of attached himself onto this wonderful light that was Rita Hayworth when she came onto the Hollywood scene. Most notably, one of the most beautiful women of her era. And when they got married uh, is when a lot of her problems started because he had a lot of dependencies and he was a very big alcoholic and that he really introduced her to drinking and things like that and eventually we saw especially with Rita Hayworth I think that was the most devastating thing that about her is she was ravaged prematurely because of her heavy drinking from an early age when she was in her 20s and in Hollywood and again like him she burned bright but she burned fast Actually, I had when you mentioned this to me when we were talking about what we're going to do on this episode and Orson Welles came up, Citizen Kane, and you mentioned Rita. And I actually read a Vanity Fair article that came out in the 70s about her life. And she had gone through about five marriages, one of them being Kirk Douglas back in the day. And also she but she did have a very abusive upbringing from as a child. Her father was very abusive in so many ways. So I'm not saying don't blame Orson Welles. He didn't help at all. No. (laughs) Just a very tragic story uh, of Rita Hayworth. And it's a shame that that kind of overshadows her successes in her career. It really does. And everybody, everybody goes back to Rita Hayworth. They always mention the what, you know, the marriage to Orson Welles did to her. And just, but you know what? She had a turbulent life. So did he. But you ever notice that that's what kind of, they were drawn to each other because they were so much alike. And that's exactly why they shouldn't have been together because they were just feeding each other's, you know, toxic behaviors. Oh, yes. All right. Well, Citizen Kane. It's about a group of reporters trying to decipher the last words spoken by millionaire newspaper tycoon Charles Foster Kane. Rosebud. That was very good, actually. <laughs> you had that same uh, a demeanor of Orson Welles. I love it. Mm-hmm. I've been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> As the reporters investigate further, the views see a display of a fascinating man's rise to fame and how he eventually falls off the top of the world. The movie is from RKO Radio Pictures, came out in 1941, directed, produced, starring, and written, with an asterisk, by Orson Welles. Of course, Herman J. Mankiewicz has a screenplay credit as well. And it stars, of course, Orson Welles. We have a quite a good cast here. Uh, one I do want to kind of highlight here is Agnes Moorhead as Mary Caden the mother, who people yeah. should recognize from the Bewitched series. Yes. And we also do have Dorothy Cummingore as Susan Alexander Kane. She is the, <laughs> someone say she is the Morian Davies stand-in. Yeah. <laughs> also, Ruth Warwick as Emily Monroe Norton Kane, who was the first wife. And oh, this is my first time watching Citizen Kane, by the way. Goodness, I can't believe you've dodged it this long because usually by now some professor has assigned it. You know what? And I did, I was taking a film studies class and not once did it come out. But I've only known Citizen Kane for being the greatest movie of all time, or you 
You hear it sometimes when people say, oh, this movie is the Citizen Kane of this genre or something along the lines of that. So Citizen Kane, it's in our language, especially in American film communities. But yeah, for me, it was first time experience. And I, you, you know, it's funny. There's some people that always have this phrase saying, oh, this person was ahead of their time or the things they did was not appreciated until like so many years later. But I feel like watching this movie, there are some shots where I was kind of astonished on how they got away with certain things, especially thinking back on how limited their equipment was. You know, nowadays we're spoiled with cranes and special effects and you can digitally remove things from mirrors or something like that. But here I kind of had myself scratch my head saying, how did they get away with certain shots? So to that effect, I really enjoyed this movie. I can tell why people call it timeless. It's a timeless tale of a man's downfall. And I guess we'll talk about it more when we go along. But I kind of want to know your history of Citizen Kane, like your relationship with the movie itself. Well, my first experience with Citizen Kane, it was assigned to me through a theater class at Baylor. And it one we had to go down to like 100 AFIs, uh, 100, top 100 movies. And so we started with Citizen Kane. And we had all agreed we were going to get together in this group and watch one a weekend. And I came the first weekend and I watched it. And I was just like, okay, it was like four of us that ended up making it. The next weekend I came and I had to watch it again because there was a lot more people who weren't there the first time and said, hey, I want to watch Citizen Kane. So, uh, anyway, by the end of it, I ended up watching it three weekends in a row. And by the third time, I had become like this expert on it because I was like, no, no, did you see this? And did you see this part? So it actually gave me an appreciation for it. But then rewatching it recently, it reminds me of the like, Casablanca. You know, there's some scenes in it that they use the mirror that I'm like, how did they get away with that shot? Mm hmm. And I get that here, too. I mean, it was just brilliant. It was and it was ahead of its time uh, for its shots. It just didn't. But I think he demanded perfection. You know, they said that he was a very difficult man to work with, but that when his projects were done, that you were so proud to be a part of him. Yes. And speaking of like camera works and all that, that's all thanks to the cinematographer whose name is Greg Tolan. Mm -hmm. He had talked about working with Orson Welles and how <laughs> how tedious he was. But funny enough. The reason why he actually approached Orson Welles to make the movie, he, you would think it would be Orson Welles trying to gather people in Hollywood, but no, it was actually the other way around when it came to the cinematographer. And he wanted to work with Orson Welles because he knew nothing about cameras and how he only knew theater. And that's what intrigued Greg. He said, I want to work with you because that gives me so much creative freedom. You know, usually a director or people that oversee the movie, like producers, they're always putting in their two cents on how things should look. And Tolan saw this as an opportunity to kind of get away with non-traditional or just experimental camera work. So huge thanks to him. Uh, I think there's a lot of contributing factors that made Citizen Kane what it is. And I don't think it should all lie on Orson Welles. I mean, don't get me wrong. Orson Welles, brilliant, Absolutely. smart man. He did amazing in the movie, both behind and in front of the camera. People like Greg Tolan and Mankiewicz, they really made the movie what it is. There's some shots where I still think, again, like, how did they get away with that with their limitations back then? And it's the flashback of Orson Welles as a child. And they go from the camera goes from outside and comes inside the house through the window and it keeps pulling all the way back. And somehow it's as if it went through the table and pulled back. And you're trying to think to yourself, well, 
pretty much cameras were strapped to like a Zamboni back then. Mm -hmm. So you would have to think, how did they get away with that? So things like that too. And also, I know the editor who is Robert Wise, he should be very familiar because he's the director of The Sound of Music, West Side Story, and Star Trek, the motion picture. And what the editor, the editing in this movie as well is just superb. I know back uh, when I was watching Mank, it gave me a lot of insight to the process on the movie just from the script itself and talking about the flashbacks and how at the time they just seemed so bizarre. Like, how can you jump from one scene to the next and it's a different time? But thinking about it now, I mean, the, the hindsight we have and how far movies have come, it's not that bizarre now. You know, we've gone so experimental. We've tried so many different methods that watching Citizen Kane, you wouldn't think like, oh, what was so controversial or why would people have a pushback on that? But given the time it came out, uh, yeah, I I could see why people thought it was something new they had never seen before. It's nothing new to us, but you can only imagine how people reacted back then to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I I love that. Have you ever heard that old saying, is it not a talent for people to recognize talent and surround themselves with it? Isn't that a talent within itself? Yeah. And I think that that's something Orson Welles also did very well and why uh, his projects. And I think a lot of that's rooted from and it comes out of that theater world because I know, you know, being involved in theater and having to do productions, you tend to do that. You start working with people and you do start finding people who you see potential in, whether it be, I'm like, oh, that's that's a great fellow actor, but he also has a really good ear for, for sound and music. And then, you know, you start working with people and then when you start getting into your later projects and your later career, you definitely start making your own little teams. And that came from his theater, Mercury Theater. They even get uh, an acknowledgement at the beginning of Citizen Kane. Exactly. And it's just all about, there's this whole sense of, of a project being greater than yourself, knowing how many parts need to go into it and, and knowing what needs to be like, it's, it's all about getting the best product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about the art at the end. And I think that's a great word also, art. And I said uh, Citizen Kane was a movie that wasn't just about making a movie. It really was an art piece. We keep breaking up that he came from theater because it did show the cinematographer he had talked about on the first 10 days of shooting that Orson Welles would actually adjust the lights himself because he just didn't know how film productions work. So the cinematographer had to approach him and say, hey, we have a whole team that does the lights. So he was a little naive when it came to film and how things are blocked and where the camera is. And I thought that was it was to his advantage. You know, the cinematographer, editors and other productions had, especially with no oversight from the studios. So I felt like a lot of liberties were taken. And funny enough, Orson Welles coming into the project, he broke some rules every now and again. And he actually, Citizen Kane was the first film, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was one of the first. And it got a lot of pushback from the studio when they found out that he actually wanted ceilings in shots. Now, normally there are never ceilings being built on sets for film. And it's easier for the camera to get away with things, but Orson Welles wanted ceilings for his sets. So they had to build ceilings, which was, I think, kind of unheard of in Hollywood before. So things like that. And also one last technical thing I want to bring up is deep focus and how he manipulated the depths and perspectives. So he would always shoot two things 
uh, in the same shot. And you will notice like there's people in the forefront and actors way in the back, but they're both in focus at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Orson Welles did admit that all the techniques he used were nothing new. He, he always wanted to emphasize that. He always said like, what we did was we didn't, we always copied from somebody else. And it was just the way that we presented it and executed it. That's what people remember the most. It's so funny that you mentioned that the perspective and about having the, you know, the focus on both one, at, you know, one way in the back and one in the front. But, you know, I immediately when you said that, I think about how in theater we place characters and we spotlight them to give that illusion. Mm-hmm. I like everything. I was just like, oh, that's like a little theater trick, you know, but of course you use it like on film, on camera. But it's about wanting to get the focus on two different thoughts at the same time. Yeah. A great cast, I would say. Orson Welles, again, he's magnificent. He, he's just, not only is, is his voice magnetic to hear on radio, but when you see him, it's amazing. I didn't get the name of the makeup artist, but there's time plays a factor in this movie. You see pretty much the beginning of his life all the way to the end. Funny enough, the beginning of the movie begins with the end of Foster Kane's life. But the makeup is just fascinating. When I learned that he was 24... I said, how did they get away with making him so old? And I learned that it took hours during those later years in his life. He had to show up at 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning for that whole week when they shot the older scenes. And it was so extensive. And I, I'm mad that I didn't get the name of the person who... Oh, actually, funny story. There's a reason why I don't know the name. Because the person responsible for making him look older was an apprentice of the actual makeup artist. And back then, credit was a huge thing. And the makeup artist, the one who was leading the charge, he didn't want his apprentice to get a credit. Yet that per that apprentice was responsible for one of the best makeup of that movie. Wow, that's insane. Ugh. I was in a Citizen Kane rabbit hole these past couple of days. I love it. Yeah, so I, I learned a lot. But aside from all the technical stuff, I want to say Citizen Kane, what makes it so remarkable, even the talent behind the camera in front, comes down to the story. That's what makes it so timeless. It's a man's it really downfall is. and his ambitions and what he has to sacrifice in order to succeed in life. There's a reason why Rosebud is such a, I mean, Rosebud, who cares? You know, nobody should care about that word. But when you think about his entire life, all his accomplishments that Foster Kane made, Charles Foster Kane, that he made, it wasn't the money he made. It wasn't acquiring a newspaper company. It wasn't even his marriages or the high education he received. It was him as a child when he was the most happiest. That was the most memorable thing, him sliding down snow with the sled with his mother. I, I thought that was very beautiful. That flashback scene is very important Rewatching it again. Mm -hmm. When you see a young Charles Foster Kane outside the window as he plays, well, pretty much the parents are giving him away without him even knowing. Yeah. His entire fate is being dealt inside the house while he's outside living his happiest moments of his life. One last thing before I give it to you, Lori, one thing I want to bring up is there's a scene where his, I think it's his first marriage where he kind of goes through the years and they're sitting at the dining table and every time it jumps to 10 years or five years later down the road they slowly start moving away from each other when you see them yeah. having breakfast for the first time they're sitting right next to each other right there on the corner and by the end of that little scene uh, she's at the very tail end 
and he's opposite of her. So I thought that was very beautiful, very uh, just visual storytelling there, which by the way, they shot that all in one day. Wow. Imagine the extensive makeup Orson Welles had to go through. I remember the first time. I mean, it's so prolific. It's so, it's something we can all resonate with about when we were the happiest and when we go through life, we're always striving for happiness. We're always striving for this and that. But at the end of the day, it's so simple. It's nothing that can be bought. It's so telling, you know, in his life and the example of his life and everything he went through, it didn't matter what he got, how much money he got, how much he owned, how much he acquired. In the end, true happiness was his that childhood it was you know that sled that he went through his childhood with and it was the simplest thing and that's what he couldn't buy back that's what he couldn't earn back and i think we all have those reflective moments i think that's why as we get older and we watch this movie it's it's so so many more of the themes of it hit close to home and then also i mean knowing knowing people like this in life you know i think we all do i think we all know our own little version our own little citizen canes our own little men of power who we 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 see you know and and you know when is enough enough how many examples have we had of it throughout the years since citizen kane and before citizen kane seeing these prolific important men and you know in the end they're alone you know so many of them just end up dying alone yeah charles foster kane himself he's so like he doesn't let anybody in throughout the entire movie i mean there's so much you could you learn about the character yet there's still mystery behind it you know, you're always wondering why is he so sheltered? Why is he so uh, just stern to everybody? Even his two wives, he he never really opens up to anybody. And yet there's so still so much character because I could see a version where this kind of goes wrong, where you treat this character that way and yet he's not likable or charming or he's just too closed off to where you can't connect with him. But the way they treat him here, again, the writing, it just all comes together. And you know what makes it more sad is that Nobody in the world besides the audience, in this case us, who don't even exist in this world, we're the only ones who know what Rosebud actually means. The world goes on not knowing what Rosebud means. And I think that's what makes it more heartbreaking at the end. Normally in in this type of movie, you would have the person who found the sled like, oh, hey, look, it says Rosebud and they connect the dots. But no, they pay no mind to the sled and they just burn it along with everything else of his. So I think that's, to me, what makes it more impactful at the end. Very sad. It is. It is because he's just this man, this myth, but nobody really knew him. So would you recommend it? (laughs) Oh, my God. I would always recommend it. I'm so glad that we had that Mank came out because it forced you to watch it. I love any time I get to talk to you and you've actually jumped into that. I love that you researched it. I love that you were so eager to find out more about it. Uh, and it does. I, You know, that's a thing. You know, hate it or love it. Citizen Kane definitely resonates with people and has an impact on them and, you know, how they how they view films. Yeah, and I thought it was a perfect time for me to watch it. I actually watched Citizen Kane right before watching Mank. I did a, I did a little bit of a double feature. And I watched Citizen Kane one more time. And I watched Mank two more times. Just I was so fascinated by the story behind this movie. And it was a can of worms. Because again, I only thought Citizen Kane, this young guy, made a lightning in the bottle movie that will never be replicated. And he almost burned down Hollywood with it. 
<laughs> before Me Too, before Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> Orson Welles almost brought down and burned Hollywood to the ground. And I love it. I, I love that <laughs> so much. But also along with that, Mank. Let's talk about Mank here because this kind of goes hand in hand on the legacy and the aftermath that came out after Citizen came came out. So 2020's Mank, it's nominated for Best Picture along other awards. In the 1930s Hollywood, it's being reevaluated through the eyes of scathing wit and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish Citizen Kane. Now, this movie is directed by David Fincher. For those who don't know David Fincher, I'm sure you've seen one of his great movies. I believe he's made some of the modern classics, if you will. Seven, Zodiac, Gone Girl, Girl with the Dragon, Tattoo, and The Social Network. And actually, it's written by his late father, Jack Fincher. And I, I didn't know about this, but this script was actually written in the 1990s. And David Fincher was supposed to direct it after 1997's The Game, starring... Michael Douglas, but he, I think he postponed it because he went on to make this little movie. I don't know if you heard of it, uh, Fight Club. <laughs> this movie stars Gary Oldman as Herman J. Mankiewicz. We have Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies, and we have Charles Dance as William Ronald Hurst. Media mogul, yes. He was a media mogul at the time uh, who was funding. Uh, they would film there at his little San Simeon place. It was like a this outside lot. He, of course, would produce all of these movies that his young uh, girlfriend was in. Yeah, uh, who is Marion Davies. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Charles Dance plays this character. So, yeah, William Randolph Hearst, he, was, he owned like a castle, right? He owned like a lot of expensive art. He had his own private zoo. So this guy pretty much ruled the country's media at the time. So this guy was like mm -hmm. top dog. It, it, I mean, if you upset him, you might as well be dead in Hollywood. He was a newspaper publisher, politician, had several of his own businesses. Yes, yeah, so... Obviously, if you're putting the pieces together, listeners, you can tell that William Randolph Hearst, the real person in real life, inspired the character Charles Foster Kane. They also share three names. <laughs> and yeah, let, let's talk about the movie. I did some research on, I did some factual checks here, and they do take a little bit of liberties in this movie. And I'll get into some of the examples here, but... Ooh, and forget for, before I forget, he's the grandfather of Patty Hearst. Ooh, and who's that? Patty Hearst is the granddaughter. It's a Hearst family, but remember, she's the one they coined Stockholm Syndrome after her. She mm. was the one, she was an heiress, author, uh, later on became an actress. But uh, yeah, she was just kind of like, ima imagine Paris Hilton, you know, in her young days. She was a Hilton girl. Mm. Well, this was Patty Hearst. She was of the Hearst fortune. So she was this little socialite. Well, these people kidnapped her, quote unquote. And they were holding her ransom for the Hearst family. This happened in the 70s for the Hearst family to pay this money for her ransom. But they were bank robbers. And uh, all of a sudden they're going, uh, they're trying to pay off the ransom. But then this big bank robbery happens. And there's all this footage of Patty Hearst, the socialite, holding a machine gun to people's heads at a bank robbery because she's fell in love with her. She fell in love with her captor and she oh. joined their gang or whatever. Uh, and then they ended up saving her and the psychologist got her off the family got her off by saying she has stockholm syndrome mm. and uh she used it as her defense and she um she was defended 
<laughs> wow. Her, her actions. Yeah. So, yeah. Whole nother story. Yeah. But <laughs> so, yeah. The story here is I thought RKO kind of like dodged a bullet when they released King Kong back in 1933. But still, they weren't out of the woods. Actually, the whole entire landscape of Hollywood, all the studios weren't out of the woods yet. They were still feeling the effects. At that time, they were just desperate. They were cutting wages. They were trying to find the next big thing. What, you know, they they were trying to find the next Wizard of Oz or the next King Kong, if you will. And actually, speaking of Wizard of Oz, Herman J. Mankiewicz was actually an uncredited writer, a writer among many writers for Wizard of Oz. So uh, Mankiewicz, he already had a reputation for writing brilliant screenplays. He already had a reputation, but I think at that point, he was kind of falling off when Orson Welles kind of approached him for Citizen Kane. Uh, he kind of had a reputation for <laughs> being a drunk as well, <laughs> uh, just like Orson Welles. So watching this movie, I find a lot of similarities between the two. But the movie itself, I, I will be honest, it's probably my least favorite from the Best Picture nominees. I'm not surprised. I, okay, don't get me wrong. I love the history behind it, a lot of behind the scenes. Also, keep in mind, the screenplay written by David Finger's father was based off an article that actually attacked Orson Welles, discrediting him as the actual screenwriter. And for those that don't know the controversy, Orson Welles had made a deal with Mankiewicz saying that to write some of the screenplay, but he would not get any of the credit. And even to this day... We really don't know the truth. We don't know how much of Mankiewicz had an input on the script and how much Orson Welles had an input on the script. Some say Mankiewicz did the entire script. Some say it was 50-50. And even some say Mankiewicz did write the entire screenplay, but Orson Welles kind of just took a bunch of liberties when it came to filming. Uh, what are your thoughts, actually, on it, Laurie? Whose side are you on? I'm on Mankiewicz's side. <laughs> I love Orson Welles, but Mankiewicz wrote this screenplay. I mean, the similarities are already. In, already. You have Marion Davies, which is obviously mm -hmm. the second wife of Charles Foster Kane in the movie. And Mankiewicz had the insight this whole time. Exactly. Orson Welles did not have the insight to write this script. He was <laughs> such an outsider. And Mankiewicz, he already had a successful career in the business. And even though... On its way to Citizen Kane, he kind of fell off, but he still managed to talk his way into San Simeon and William Randolph's Hearst Castle. <laughs> you know, he he had he was always there at the parties, rubbing elbows with politicians, with big studio producers. So there is no way Orson Welles could have wrote any of this script. Now, I will say there's maybe a few times where in the movie of Citizen Kane where Orson Welles could have taken liberties into his own hands from what i know mankiewicz was never a part of the production he only wrote the script no. and sent it off so the end product he had no control over mm -hmm. yeah i will say mankiewicz wrote the entire script but i will say orson welles had to have had some type of input when it came to certain scenes I think he probably did, but at the same time, I think, and that's the brilliant part about Orson Welles, and we can see that from his movies and from his productions and stuff. He is smart enough to know when something is good. I, I think that he, yes, interpretation, but do I think that he changed any part of that script? No way. I think he knew. I uh, I think he was just like, yes, um, this is this is good 
good work. And other than that, I would just say probably his performance. You know, uh, that's probably the biggest part where I could see where he took some liberties. And I will say Orson Welles' performance is very over the top (laughs) in a good way. I like it. But yes, I know why, you know, the Oscar that was won for this movie was for screenplay. You know, (laughs) like, you know, Orson Welles. Yeah, his acting's a little over the top for me, but I love him. I love it. (laughs) Speaking of which, the actor here who portrays Orson Welles, I thought he did phenomenal replicating that. His name is Tom Burke uh, in the movie Mank. You know what? He looks so familiar and I forgot to look it up, but he looked like an actor from Mad Men. Might as well have been in that show. Yeah, because he really did. He who if, Whether he was in Mad Men or not, he really captured the authenticity of Orson Welles. I really, really liked it. And I loved how they downplayed it. They didn't show him a lot. And I loved that. We got very little Orson. Yeah, and Mankiewicz and Orson Welles, I believe it was after he, after Mankiewicz had got into that car accident, Mm -hmm. uh, he had broken his leg, which they show in the movie, and they kind of don't touch on it too much, which I wish they did, and it's that when that accident happened, Orson Welles actually approached him, but not to write Citizen Kane right off the bat. There was a few other projects that Mankiewicz wrote for Orson Welles, and it was that relationship that they had that actually led to Citizen Kane. Speaking of like my little slight criticisms of the movie, I was expecting something a little bit different. I was expecting more of a movie that explored the relationship between Orson Welles and Mankiewicz. But thinking about it now, I think not having Orson Welles in the movie as much was a good thing. I I think it would have overshadowed the movie just a little bit. I mean, this movie was about Mankiewicz and his journey in Hollywood. So... Give or take, you know, you either want a movie about Mankiewicz and Orson Welles or you want to really focus on uh, Herman. I I think it was well. I think it was well done. This is a very different movie that we've seen from David Fincher. It is. It is. And I liked it because it reminded me of Citizen Kane. And uh, so I loved how he did that. I was like, oh, you... That's why I really wish I would have watched them back to back and like had that experience that you had, because I think I would have felt that even more. Mm -hmm. But I got it. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I see what they did there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because it seems like such a love letter to 30s Hollywood. But at the same time, it unveils such a such a the nasty side of Hollywood back then and even kind of resonates today. And, and talk about how different it was because it was very conservative. Hollywood, the people who were running Hollywood back then were so extremely conservative. Louis B. Mayer and, of course, um, you know, Hearst himself. Uh, and there's a great scene. It's probably one of my favorite scenes, although it's the scene where I would advise people, or, you know, and I'm sure, you know, some people might not have to rewind it and rewatch it as many times as I did. But I literally had that scene where they're all talking politics uh, after dinner or it's either after or before dinner but i remember i kept rewinding it they're talking politics they're talking socialism they're co- talking communism and remember it's the scene where the character that amanda Seyfried plays that's supposed to be you know marion davis she says oh uh sorry i'm just talking again she walks out she has to excuse herself that's actually my favorite scene but i kept having to rewind it to catch everything because all the little nuances in that scene i was like oh my god there's so much to catch here and going back i would catch something else and i'm gonna tell you that one quote 
that he makes in it, uh, Gary Oldman makes in it, when he says the difference between socialism and communism. I swear that's been in my head. That's something I'm going to be saying the rest of my life. <laughs> the difference between socialism and communism. Socialism is when you share the wealth. Communism is where you share the poverty. It's such a great scene. And when Amanda Seyfried, uh, Marion Davies in the movie where she kind of spills the beans on Hearst. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, that's why I have to rewind it so much. Because again, there are so many things that were just going on in that scene. They're talking about communism and socialism. And then how nonchalant they were talking about the uprising of Hitler. Yes. You have to think about this was a world before World War II. And I thought that was yep. so fascinating how they were just talking about Hitler. And about how he was no threat. And about how Germany is such a massive consumer. Mankiewicz saying, oh, I heard he opened up his first concentration cap. I was like, whoa, like, we're just talking about this nonchalant. But I have to remember, this was a world before Nazis. And that's the brilliant part. Somebody says, and I think it's Marion Davis part. She says, what's a concentration camp? And back then, that was people's reaction to it. No, actually, it was MGM's uh, head producer, L.B. Mayer, which he... Excuse the Yiddish, but he was an asshole in this movie, and I loved it. He really, was. really quick sidebar of so this own I. movie. I love when he has to go out in front of his whole entire uh, studio and say, We're going to have to cut wages. And he's full on politician saying, You know, money's not everything, all this stuff, and we're going to cut your wage in half, but I'll pay everything back. He never does. And when he leaves, he talks to one of his guys, says, How did I do? Was that good? Was that good? <laughs> like, he just cut everyone's wages, yeah. and he just. He was more about like how he appeared. And I, I loved yep. it so much, and especially when he monologues with Mankiewicz and his brother. Uh, I thought it was great. The one that sticks out to me is uh, I feel love where here, here and here. And he points to yes! his, his brain, his heart and his groin. Uh, <laughs> I, just things like that. It's a phenomenal job. The actor, because I looked up the actual L.B. Mayer and the actor whose name is Elris Howard. And they look just alike. Some of this casting is spot on. Where do you recognize him from? He has such a very familiar face, and I am hoping you had the answer to it. Dylan, that actor is from Full Metal Jacket. That's Cowboy. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, man, that was a while ago. Yes, but no, he has a really like, he's more of a character actor as a lot of the better actors in Hollywood now are. They make their longevity off that. But he, I've loved him since Full Metal Jacket. And he's actually married to Deborah Winger. What a quotable monologue, too, when he's walking down the hallway with them. Like, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I want to copy that down and give it to every film student coming through. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of the better scenes or better moments of the movie, especially when he says people will tell you there are m as much stars in Hollywood that there are in the sky. That's a lie. There's only one star, and that's Louis the Lion. And, and, and that was his way of saying me. I'm the star. Like, I'm MGM. It, it was his way of saying like, oh, the studio, like it's don't, it's not about you. You know, it's about the art. But really what he's saying is it's about me. Like I run the show. Yeah. They're the only people who are famous are the people who I say are. Yeah. Again, you love to hate them. Very quick sidebar. So recently I discovered out of nowhere in the midst of watching these Citizen Kane and Mank uh, videos, a video came out from Jamie Kennedy. Do you remember him, the Malibu's Most Wanted? I do. Okay. So out of nowhere, this video just rec was recommended to me. I'm like, okay, let me watch it. And it was called Why Hollywood is Dying. And he has such a great insight. And he hasn't been involved in Hollywood that much, especially now. But he had such insight as to how things worked back then. And 
watching Mank and researching, it was so true. Like back then in the 30s, Hollywood was just a club. They controlled how people viewed the world and how people viewed fame. But all it really was, was if you were in the 30s, went to Hollywood and you began working within the industry, you're essentially part of the club. It's that easy back then. And for Jamie Kennedy, it was just as easy too. He said he finished high school. He didn't know what to do. And he went to community college and he flunked every class except acting. And his acting director said, go, you need to go to Hollywood right now and just start working. And he's like, how, how do I do this? He grew up in Philadelphia and she said, just go and you'll figure it out. That's what he did. He just went out and he just, just started getting jobs, started getting jobs. And it landed him his first acting credit. Jamie Kennedy was an extra in the Dead Poet Society. And he said, wow. literally like two weeks before I went to Hollywood, I was a delivery driver at Domino's. Two weeks later, I'm at Craft Services and five feet away from me is Robin Williams eating hummus. <laughs> That's crazy, right? Like you wouldn't think like, oh, I have to do all these things. I Like I, no one could ever make it in Hollywood especially back then, but essentially all you have to really do is show up and rub some the right elbows and wrong elbows and just make a movie. You're in the industry. So it's really uh, it was really nice in Mank to see the landscape, the environment that Hollywood was back then. Kind of like an illusion, if you will, like that was kind of bursted for me. I don't know, like uh, you think of like the grand movies back then, especially from that time. Thinking about it now, it's kind of like the bandit was kind of pulled and how grimy Hollywood was, especially when politics came into play. Oh, so grimy. And then on top of it, speaking of like Louis B. Mayer and Mank, and he was the, one of the, uh, he did uncredited work for The Wizard of Oz. I read about Louis B. Mayer and his assault against Judy Garland, and she actually pinned it in her autobiography. Wow. About Louis B. Mayer, and he would make her, she was 13 at the time. She was between 12 and 13, and they were using her, you know, for different movies, and they were bringing her in for The Wizard of Oz, and every day he he would call her in and he would make her come and talk to him and sit on his lap. Wow. And just about the terrible uh, uncomfortableness she felt by him and him. Of course, they. I, she claims that he did abuse her. It's like, you're going to be Dorothy, kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, Shut up. <laughs> yeah, and For anyone who has watched the Julie Garland uh, movie uh, with Renee Zellweger, that opening scene where a young Judy Garland's talking to the MGM producer. I'm pretty sure it's not L.B. Mayer because this guy was big. But that uh, just that first scene is just very just creepy, just unsettling. But that's how Hollywood was back then. And it's uh, it's very mm-hmm. sad. But we've come a long way. I mean, I know we still have long ways to go. But looking at it now. Back when I was working in Hollywood, they used to put me on the prop table next to a sticker that said human woman. <laughs> Don't blink. Uh, <laughs> they paid me in brooches. See, I think Mank, it's so funny too, because you can tell Jack Fincher, the father of Dave Fincher, loved Hollywood in a different type of way, uh, not in a romanticized way, just how things worked. Like I said, this the screenplay was heavily influenced by the article that came out that I believe was actually the character that Lily Collins played, the typewriter for Mankiewicz. And she's the one that came mm-hmm. out with an article saying 
it was all Mankiewicz. Orson Welles had nothing to do with the writing. All the successes of Citizen Kane came from him. And then eventually down the road, a rebuttal article came out and drama ensued. But anyways, so yeah, Jack Fincher kind of had this fascination of Hollywood during that time. And talk about an unconventional director like David Fincher to make a movie like this. Citizen Kane, even from its own conception from the writing, there was a lot of pushback. Most of Hollywood mm-hmm. did not want this movie to be made in fear of their careers, of their jobs. So I think it's so funny now that we're getting this type of movie based off of Citizen Kane. Little things like, okay, Marion Davies, she was a mistress of William Randolph Hearst. Now, if you knew nothing about Citizen Kane and the whole drama behind it, you would have thought she was the daughter of Charles uh, Dance, of William Randolph Hearst in the Mank movie, because she keeps calling him Pops. And there's never mm-hmm. there's never a hint of like a romantic relationship with them. You would have thought, oh, that's that's the daughter, naturally. But no, I, I, I don't know. I, I thought that was kind of weird. I, I wish they would have played up a little bit more that she was the mistress uh like you know just that's real life that's what happened uh i'm not trying to demean her character at all uh i just wish they were a little bit faithful to that to real life to me i don't know oh i mean amanda sifu was great i thought she was phenomenal in this movie uh along with gary oldman i thought the chemistry was great even though the age difference to me is kind of creepy but it's all platonic that too okay sorry i'm i want your thoughts on amanda seafried and the character itself in the movie but when the wife kind of confronts Mankiewicz Mankiewicz's wife confronts him at the end she says like I raised the kids on my own you have these little funny platonic relationships that's okay do what you want but I'm leaving <laughs> pretty much which I kind of to me I was like did he have platonic relationships I I really I highly doubt he was just really friendly. So you're asking whether or not they Ron Howard this. It, that's what I like to say about when they take away some of the the ickiness. And I'm like, oh, they Ron Howard that. I like that saying. That's really good. Coin it. Talk to a lawyer. Oh, yeah. Trademark. I'm, I'm coining that. Yeah. Every time something like that happens, because that's the problem I have with Ron Howard biopics. Uh, I mean, his own movies, that's fine. Yeah. If you want to make, you know, family movies. But when I have a problem with Ron Howard making biopics and the reason I have a, wrong, a big problem with Ron Howard making biopics is because he he Ron Howard's them and he takes away all of the dirt. Oh, that's not clean looking and dirty. Now, let's give people a clean story. No, when it comes to biographies, I don't want to see the clean. I want to know what happened. Do you think? there's a little bit of ron howard in this movie and did it bother you as much as it did me uh i think there is um it didn't bother me as much though because i was guessing they just didn't want to pull focus from what this story was okay but yes i do think they ron howard it it always bothers me a little bit i think that it's obvious i think that as a viewer i'm watching it and i'm like okay well i know you know it, it, it they're not saying it and they every time they even say the word platonic, they say it sarcastically. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm like, OK, I get it. And I, I just feel like they just didn't aggressively approach it. But I think that we're supposed to. The, but they didn't deny it either. This is what's going on. You know, and it, they just kind of don't address it. And that's where I'm kind of like at a tug of war with myself when I like how I feel about this movie, because Mankiewicz himself is not the most likable person 
No. And I'm not sure if the movie wanted me to root for him or not. It did. It Okay, I see what you're saying. And so in that respect, I do agree. I do agree that if they would have shown certain aspects of it, we wouldn't have rooted for him as much. And I think that's part of the reason why it took so long to make this movie about him. Yeah. I mean, I think Mankiewicz is as much as a good person as Orson Welles is, if I'm being honest. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but yet, I don't think we'll ever get an Orson Welles movie. <laughs> of course, if this, if you would have taken the exact same history and a woman would have written this, it would have been a much different movie because I think she would have specifically included those things in there. See, and that's why I think this movie wants to eat it, like have its cake and eat it too, where it's semi trying to tear down the curtain of Hollywood back then, but at the same time trying to save face for certain people mm. and their legacy. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're trying to do both. They're trying to save a legacy, but at the same time yeah. kind of bring, bring up a conversation at the same time. And it's like, well, what do you like? What are you trying to tell me? Like, is this a movie about Mankiewicz and him fighting the odds? So everything else about it, like the acting's great. Everything going on behind the camera, behind the camera with its director the editing the way it's shot everything about it is great but when i when i'm thinking about the source material and what really happened in hollywood back then that's where i kind of like my moral compass kind of doesn't know where to go absolutely you know because if you want to get the truth i just imagined it i my mind went to a funny place and i just imagined like a different director like who who pointed out you know the reality of it and i just imagined the party scene but you just see judy garland a young judy garland running across the back like get her back in her cage you're supposed to be asleep <laughs> where's the second all and she's just like kind of confused and lost saying mickey rooney oh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry another example well not of that but like uh lb <laughs> mayor i didn't even know about the whole judy garland being 12 or 13 and sitting on his lap that's mega creepy and now i kind of regret praising well i know it, it's acting it's it's a different person portraying this person but one thing that kind of leads into that whole hallway monologue was when he punches i think a director out of his office and he says how dare you talk about your own mother like that uh, i thought it was funny too but then it's like wait this person is an evil bastard <laughs> yeah so then you kind of regret like oh like i i shouldn't like him i don't know oh also did you notice that bill nye the science guy was playing sinclair oh yeah i saw that i yeah like i watched that i i caught it the very first time because i saw i was like oh sinclair i've been hearing about his name this whole time so i finally get to see him and then i was like is that bill the, bill nye the science guy and sure enough i looked up the cast and it was i thought that was uh, a little weird I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he looks like him. I know. No, but I mean, it, it, it is, though, because you really do. I love this. This is such a great actor and kudos to him. But I love Louis B. Bear in this. I loved his character. I loved his monologues. But you're right. You know, it's he in reality, you know, and even in the movie, you know, he was this horrible person. <laughs> um, but you're right. He does punch out that guy for, you know, you never talk about your own mother that way. But I mean, let's come to think about it. I mean, Hitler, you know, was all about family traditions. But, yeah. you know. <laughs> and and not putting your elbows on the table and they say he was a he was a clean freak his house was immaculate you know but uh he had some skewed political views yeah i will tell you now that we're kind of talking about the cast here i kind of want to lead up to our leads but i thought charles dance was surprisingly entertaining in this movie oh yeah i didn't expect 
this type of performance. And when I read that he was playing William Randolph Hearst, I was very curious to see how he would pull it off. And I loved him in it. I, I know he's another a-hole and I'm sure he did some t- very terrible things in real life. But Charles Dance, I, I thought he was really, really well done by him. Yeah, wonderful. I loved how he didn't try to overplay him. He was just perfect. Talk about subtleties. Talk about ju- talk about just giving us perfection from a character. And I, I just thought he was beautiful. I-, I Great acting. Great actors all around. And the last time we see him, he delivers a great monologue to Gary Oldman as well. Oh, uh, yeah, going back to Amanda Seyfried, I-, I enjoyed her very well. I think she has a very good shot at the Oscar. I love her. I think that in Hollywood, she's been kind of, you know, and it happens a lot with a pretty young girl. Uh, it was hard for her to escape that character she played in Mean Girls, yeah, um, where she played the dumb blonde. Uh, I, I've loved her for years, but, you know, she was getting typecast there for a while. And I think that instead of fighting against her typecast, she really learned how to embrace it. I think this is a great little role for her. Uh, I think there were so many ways she could have done this the wrong way. And she was just perfection. The part that got me where I was just like, okay, there's the, I always say, I always have those moments in movies where I'm like, and there's the Oscar nom. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think for me, it happened pretty early on with her when I saw my moment where I was just like, that was perfection. And it's when Gary Oldman first gets to the set when she's being, you know, burned alive. And what's at stake here? Yeah, what's at stake here? And he goes up to light her cigarette and they're they're going back and forth. Talk about banter. Mm -hmm. You know, you look up banter in the dictionary and that's her character. And he makes a comment to her. He tells her you're smarter than you look. And she looks at him and she says, that was a compliment. And he said, you see, I told you. (laughs) And that was everything to me. Uh, And that was that moment for me. And mind you, she went on to, you know, the rest of her performance was just as good. But at that moment, I was just like, oh, there she is. And there's that Oscar nom right there. How did you, because I I feel like uh, we had talked about this movie before. Uh, off the record and (laughs) uh, you had talked about Mm -hmm. uh, some things that they address at the end of the movie and I thought you were referring to the last conversation that that Marion Davies and Herman share about Citizen Kane because she knew essentially that this movie and this certain character was based off of her and the way she was written in the movie and she had a problem with it yes how do you think how they addressed it in this movie do you think it was well done because i'm not sure how i feel about that as well among other things towards the end yeah i think that they kind of dropped the ball a little bit at the end i think that they made some safe choices there yeah i I would say it was a very safe kind of neatly put a bow at the end yeah i don't a little too clean i do not think they had a picnic at the ranch i don't think it was a very civil conversation i think she was pissed and rightfully so i mean who wouldn't react that in that way the way they did in the movie i thought it was really very nice really (laughs) ron howard if you will (laughs) yes i think a lot of it was very polite (laughs) i love david fincher i don't want to associate me saying oh ron howard with that (laughs) ron howard's a fine director don't get me wrong uh but i don't want to discredit david fincher uh that's why it was so puzzling for me because when i read about this movie and david fincher was making it i thought we're going to get a little bit more gritty and real going based off his past projects. I felt like it was a lot more safe compared to what David Fincher has done. It was, but do you ever get the feeling that even now 
Like, it's so funny because they we're finally at a point now, right? This was so many years ago. We can make this movie, right? But do you ever get the feeling that people are still a little bit afraid to go too far? Yes, because and especially now, I, I feel like Hollywood is on eggshells at this point. Yes. If there was any director that would have kind of really pulled the curtain, I thought it would have been David Fincher. But again, he's... Uh, I think at this point in his career, he's starting to become a part of the machine in a sense. And I'm not not as an insult at all. I get it. You know, I get why he would make a movie like this the way it came out. We have to beg the question, like, are we coming to an age now in this era of cancel culture where what kind of product is going to start coming as a result of the fear? Are we going to start getting these quasi lukewarm, clean, polite movies? Is this going to be a new trend? And I hope not because, okay, let's be honest. Most of these people are gone. They're, they've been, they're past. Yeah. So I don't see any type of integrity that could be tainted. I don't see why we have to kind of tiptoe around these issues, especially when you're talking about stories from way years past. Exactly. But and I think that Citizen Kane, though, I don't, I think it's something that's very uh, personal and very, uh, precious to a lot of people from what it represents and I think that it might be a fear of portraying these writers and screenwriters and these directors of the time and you know revealing things about what actually happened during the time and then people will come out you know in this cancel culture and they start saying well they start boycotting certain things and I don't think that they wanted that to necessarily get ripped from it but at the same time we can't be afraid to tell those stories and and you see it all the time you see it Harvey Weinstein you know people all of a sudden you know they start pulling that you see it you know when when allegations start coming out whether they're founded or not you know a lot of people start to distance themselves from these great actors nobody's exempt anymore and it's so funny because it's almost as if nothing is exempt. Nobody's exempt, even if you've been dead for how many years, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dr. Seuss uh, can't catch a break. <laughs> I know, Dr. Seuss couldn't even catch a break. Hello. <laughs> uh, but what did you think about, uh, very before we wrap it up here, what did you think about Gary Oldman? I love Gary Oldman. <laughs> I loved him in this movie. I I don't I can't even imagine anybody else having played the role. I just love him. I love how he captured the whole nuance. Uh, in, even in the movie, they say they keep you around because he keeps you around. Hearst keeps you around because he likes the way that you talk. And he does. But then there's that double edged sword. He, you know, he didn't know when to stop talking, which is a great thing, you know, but it's also what got him in trouble. You know, he would take it to that point. And then, you know, the, of course, the alcohol consumption didn't help things. But what genius, you know, comes out of it. But that's a thing, you know, to filter, to filter it at all would be to take away the genius as well as to take away the glaring insults <laughs> i thought he was great yeah if if you had told me this is the way herman mankiewicz was i would have been totally fine he was very charming you can definitely tell like i bought that he did talk his way into William Randolph Hearst Castle. Like, I know why he was invited to the parties. There's a great thing in theater and, and film when you have auditions. And I think it's Nico, our friend Nico, who had, had coined it to me. It's the first audition I ever went to where they said the elevator chat. What is that called? Elevator pitch. The elevator pitch, mm -hmm. right? And that's the first thing that I thought of when I saw Gary Oldman playing this character. I was like, this is a guy who always gets the elevator pitch right. Yeah, 
All the time. That's who he is. And I was just like, oh, so yeah, come Oscar time. He's going to give him a run for the money. We have such great contenders this year for Oscar season. I'm so excited. Yeah, I can't wait. And speaking of elevators, I want to end it off here. Legend has it that Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst shared an elevator at one time. And they did not speak one word to each other until William Randolph Hearst was about to get off. And Orson Welles asked him, did you watch Citizen Kane? And he said something about like, I would die before I ever watched it. And you know, Orson Welles said, legend has it. He says, Charles Foster Kane would have seen it. Wow. And I don't know if that's true or not. That's uh, uh, one of those Hollywood legends. But if that ever did happen, it is beautiful. I love that so much because you think about it. William Randolph Hearst's legacy is now a part of Citizen Kane. People will remember Citizen Kane more and that character, Charles Foster Kane, and associate him with a William Randolph Hearst. And I think that's beautiful. Like, that's the ultimate gotcha, <laughs> both from Mank and it. Orson Welles. I only hope someday that somebody immortalizes me by making a horrible movie about me. <laughs> <laughs> a one, oh, wait, a wonderful movie about horrible me. <laughs> That'll be the name of the movie. Yes. It's such a shame that both of these men, Orson Welles and... Mankiewicz that essentially their careers kind of and I know Orson Welles kind of made more movies afterwards but really both of their careers kind of like tail ended from Citizen Kane yeah it's not beautifully poetic but it's it sure is a poem a haiku if you will yes a haiku if you will <laughs> uh so oh Lori question here because I kind of like I, I ran this question to myself as well but Mank or Orson Welles I mean both of these men they seem like such a, a person you want to go out with. Like, you know, you you want to go downtown Austin and just have the time of your life. But who who are you taking? Because I, I have an answer to this one. Oh, my gosh. That's a great question. I'm going to have to go with Mank for the conversation and just to hear his stories. And I think that it wouldn't be dull. Mind you, if I, you know, it's tempting to go with Wells because if I go with Wells... It's more tempting for the people that he would attract more than him, him more than himself, because to be around him, I think it would be like, yes, blah, blah, blah. Tell me more about you again. <laughs> See, and that's that's why I would go with Orson Welles. Just uh, just because I want the night to end. I think I would have definitely married Orson Welles. Yeah. <laughs> well, only reason why is because I, I would love for the night to end with Orson just tearing apart an entire room for five minutes ah! straight yeah that that's what i want to see and like me in the corner just sipping my little jack and coke just like yes yes this is exactly how i wanted the <laughs> night to end <laughs> but the shadow is like going across your face oh yes the perfect lighting oh yes <laughs> with that deep focus so me and him are both in focus at the exact same time <laughs> oh yes all right well for those who have not seen citizen kane I would love to know. Get drunk and watch it. Yes. Well, sober. <laughs> oh, or sober. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, well, actually, hey, watch it sober and then drunk. And then tell me yeah. how that experience went for you. Because it was my first time and I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more the nice. second time, giving hindsight and context and all that. But for those who have seen it, both Citizen Kane and Mank, let us know on our social medias, at Cinema Show Live on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. Talk back to us. We're talking to you. Don't be rude. <laughs> Show us some love on the social medias. <laughs> Lori, 
such a delight. I love having these little one-on-ones with you, revisiting a classic, giving it some hindsight and uh, poking some holes at it. It's not my worst Monday night. (laughs) I also have something special that I call Rosebud. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter, darling. Lovely Lori, Lori underscore Guajardo. And you can find me on my personal Twitter, go ahead and tweet me if you're drunk, especially if you're drunk. I want to see what you have to say. As Orson Welles. <laughs> yes. Make a fake account uh, as Orson Welles and just tweet at me while you're drunk. <laughs> I would love that. Make- Somebody do that, please. I would make my day. You can do that at Dylan MM5. That's right. D-Y-L-A-N-M-M-5. This is The Cinema Show. Remember, all films are subjective and it's all about perspective. Have a great day and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.